Joan Esposito. Live, local, and progressive. Quite frankly, I get most of my news from you. Joan Esposito. Y'all ready for this? On WCPT 820. Hello. Thank you for joining me this Wednesday, February 15th. Hope you had a really nice Valentine's Day that maybe somebody appreciated you and let you know that. I think that's the bigger picture on Valentine's Day. Letting the people know who mean something to us, that they do mean something to us. So hope you got that feedback. If not, allow me to give it to you right now because I appreciate you so much for listening to this show, texting into this show, calling into this show. It, uh, it means the world to me. It, uh, it really does. Today we're going to take a break from mayoral politics. Well, let me, <laughs> yeah, no. Okay. Let me be more precise. Tomorrow, Thursday, we are going to spend an hour with Cam Buckner and an hour with Sophia King. Three to four, four to five. And again, it is your opportunity to call in, text in, let me know what you want those people to talk about. What are their policies? What are their plans if they become the next mayor of the city of Chicago? Uh, today, though, uh, at 2.30, we're going to be talking to Tom Tunney. He is the, um, <laughs> Ann, the Ann Sathers alderman who is uh, leaving city council, toyed with the idea of running for mayor himself, and uh, decided not to. And then kind of surprisingly, because he's uh, considered a more progressive member of the city council, he endorsed Paul Vallis. I want to talk to him about his time in the city council. There's a lot of talk about a lot of institutional memory going away with all of the departures from city council. There are at least 15 seats in the Chicago city council that will have brand new older people either because somebody retired or they ran for higher office or they are running for mayor. So Tom Tunney at 2.30 going to give us a real interesting perspective. And then later today, we're going to do our monthly segment on media. Talk to Jennifer Schulze, Mark Jacob, going to be joined for a time by Phil Rosenthal, who is always a delight to join these conversations. I don't know if you saw this. But I was really, you know, I'm no super fan of the New York Times. As a matter of fact, to be perfectly honest, um, I do glance at the front page. But any news story they cover, I look elsewhere to get the details. I absolutely look elsewhere to get the details because I personally have gotten so tired, so tired of their... What about ism? You know, there was a time years ago where if, okay, the jobs numbers come out, they're X. The headline would have been jobs numbers come out, they're X. Now it's like jobs numbers come out, they're X. What does it mean for Biden? Does it mean Biden's popularity is slipping? Will Bi- Even if it's good news, will Biden be able to maintain it? I'm just so sick of that. I am... Um, didn't see much past that, but I've pretty much written off the New York Times. And um, we've let them know. I mean, we get a, a much pared down digital subscription here at this house. 
because Ray and I both are just, we get more frustrated than informed when we read the New York Times. Well, 180 past and present New York Times contributors have signed an open letter to the paper's standards editor condemning what they see as the ongoing unethical anti-trans bias in its coverage of trans, non-binary, and gender non-conforming people. The New York Times articles have been cited by legislators and in court cases where people are trying to make it more difficult or ban gender-affirming care. They say, see, it's not just us. Look at these three New York Times articles that talk about how bad this is. You know, honestly, I hadn't been paying attention. I was so frustrated with their negativity toward an economy that's doing great, a jobs numbers that are doing great, a country that's doing great, and yet every positive headline had to have that little bit of doom and gloom. You know, we don't want anybody to think we're liberal or that we like this current administration. Oh, God, no. Well, I haven't been paying attention to this, but um, in this open letter, The open letter was sent to Philip Corbett, Associate Managing Editor for Standards at the New York Times. And they say, while there are reporters that cover this issue fairly, quote, their work is eclipsed by what journalists, by what one journalist has calculated as over 15,000 words of front page Times coverage debating the propriety of medical care for trans children. That is in the last eight months alone. The, they say that um, eight, 180 and counting past and present New York Times contributors have signed this letter because more people are adding their names to this letter as time goes on. Back when I was a practicing journalist, the New York Times really was considered the gold standard, the paper of record. I didn't care for it back then, not because I felt it was leaning one way or the other or pandering to an audience or taking a stand. I didn't like it then because I thought the writing was just incredibly boring. It was just dry as a desert. But I still looked at it. I still read it. But now, I don't recognize the New York Times. I really don't. And um, the fact that they have been writing a large number of articles that, what are they? Are they now doctors? Are they now scientists? The fact that the the anti-trans folks who are going to court and trying to pass laws are citing multiple. There's one court case that cited three different New York Times articles by three different people as proof, as proof of their cause and the fact that this um, gender uh, gender confirming care should be banned or limited or parents should be. 
um, charged with felonies. Somebody, you know, somebody stepped in and bought the Los Angeles Times. Jeff Bezos stepped in and bought the Washington Post. I think it's time that the New York Times got a new owner. Do I want it to be a progressive paper? No, I don't want it to be progressive or conservative. I want it to be boring like it used to be. I want it to be just straightforward. Anyway, that's, I'm sure, as you can tell, I'm a little fired up about that. That's one of the topics that we're going to touch on in our media segment today. Right now, though, big news today is Governor Pritzker. Just a little while ago, he gave the State of the State address. And um, honestly, the news is uh, the news is pretty good. What? He has accomplished how we weathered COVID and where we are going in the in the future. I'm going to take a real quick break right now. And when we come back, I'm going to play you uh, a snippet from the state of the state address that given by Governor Pritzker just a few hours ago. We'll be back after this. Take Jonas Pazito live, local, and progressive with you on the go by using the TuneIn app on your phone. Just search for WCPT. 820. Around the town, Chicago, with Al Besslaw. I never enjoyed opera if I didn't listen to the album. And I could read the libretto with it, so I saw what they're saying in English. And then when I went, it made sense. When I went without that, when I was in school, they took us to the opera. I think I took naps, flirted with some of the girls around me. I don't think I was paying attention. No one did back then. When the minute the music started, eyes closed and we fell asleep. Sunday afternoons at 2 on WCPT 820. WCPT 820, Chicago's progressive talk, where facts matter. This is Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. I am going to share with you some of the governor's state of the state address in just a couple of seconds, but um, this news has just broken. Again, for those of us of a certain age, it's going to hit a lot harder than perhaps a younger demographic. Raquel Welch has passed away. Um, we don't know exactly why. Uh, her representative said that it was after a brief illness. She was 82. And uh, that right now is pretty much all we know. I believe she was born and raised in Chicago, if I'm not mistaken. <clears throat> but certainly she went on to be um, a huge, huge movie star. And what a lot of people may not remember, back in her era, when a woman turned 40, I mean, forget it, any, any career in film or television was over. 40 was the... The date, the sell-by date. And women weren't considered beautiful after that. They weren't considered sexy after that. You can't, if you didn't live through it, it's hard to believe now because we see, heck, we see Jane Fonda, who's like 82, and she's still, you know, gorgeous and present in every way. But women used to be discarded quite regularly Once they turned 40 and Raquel Welch 
came to Chicago to celebrate her 40th birthday, and she did a photo shoot with Victor Skrebneski that was stunning. It was beautiful. It was sexy. And she released the pictures. And frankly, she almost single-handedly changed the impression of whether or not a woman was still beautiful and sexy and desirable at the ancient age of 40. She blew it up. She blew that stereotype up. And whatever else you know about her, whatever else you like or don't like about her, she she was really important. In, you know, now we see, you know, we've got Nicole Kidman and Laura Dern and Reese Witherspoon and all of these women <clears throat> who are not considered unattractive or icky somehow because they're over 40. We all owe a debt to Raquel Welch for that. She was like, I don't care. I'm 40. I'm not going to lie about my age. And I am going to show you that I'm still a sexy, attractive woman. And by God, if you, um, if you, I don't know if they're online anywhere, but if you pull up those pictures that Victor Skrebneski shot of her, she blew that stereotype out of the water. Raquel Welch, uh, her representative is saying dead at the age of 82 after a brief illness. Back on to politics. Uh, today, Governor Pritzker gave the State of the State Address. He talked about what we've accomplished. We've paid off a lot of debts and uh, what he still wants to accomplish going forward. I want to share uh, a little bit of what he had to say. Listen to this. The last time I stood here seems like a lifetime ago. So many fiscal challenges laid ahead and so much progress had been made. What was once in Illinois with $17 billion in overdue bills is now in Illinois that pays its bills on time. What was once in Illinois that went years without a budget is now in Illinois that has passed four balanced budgets in a row. What was once a state with no cushion to protect it in an economic downturn is now in Illinois on track to have a $2.3 billion rainy day fund. What was once in Illinois with a credit rating on the verge of junk status is now in Illinois getting credit upgrades. Our fiscal progress is remarkable. Remember the $230 million in College Illinois debt? Paid. Remember the $900 million in group health insurance debt? Paid. How about the $800 million in Thompson Center liability? Paid. The people clapping are the ones who work there. Uh, the unemployment trust fund, $4.5 billion of debt paid. 
the $1.3 billion debt owed to Illinois' Treasury funds that had been swept by previous governors paid. $8 billion of overdue bills paid. One of the things that the governor wants to do going forward, something that got a little bit pushed back because of all the work and worry about COVID, is something called Smart Start Illinois. This is a pre-kindergarten education has been something that Governor Pritzker has talked about for quite a while. Um, he says this program that he wants to put out, Smart Start has four elements. There's going to be pre-K, child care, early intervention, and home visiting. He said he wants Illinois to be the state with the best preschool education and support of any state in the nation. That is one of his, that is one of his big goals going forward. Um, you know, Make no small plans. And that seems to be what uh, Governor Pritzker is is doing here. Uh, he has been reelected to his second term quite handily. He tells us, at least for now, that he has no presidential ambitions. We take him at his word. And, um, you know, Bruce Rauner really really drove the boat up on the rocks. He really did. He was so determined that if he could that if he could just shut down the state economy that Mike Madigan would have to capitulate to him. That you know, he knew that Democrats cared about the state and cared that the state wasn't going to be paying its bills and that businesses that rely on the state some of them were just going to crumble. He didn't care about that. He felt that if he held the budget hostage, Mike Madigan would give in to him. You can love Mike Madigan. You can hate Mike Madigan. You can have no opinion about Mike Madigan. But Mike Madigan went toe-to-toe with Bruce Rauner and didn't crumble, didn't give in, didn't fold. That's the good news. The bad news is that because of what went on down in Springfield, Illinois, our credit rating got downgraded and downgraded and downgraded and downgraded. And um, we've had Susanna Mendoza on a few times because slowly but surely we are getting those credit upgrades back. We still aren't where we started before Rauner. But we are moving in the right direction. We are moving up. And he's right. You know, some of it has been COVID money that's come from the federal government, but some of it has been just how you allocate. You get a windfall from the government. Should you put forth some splashy new program that's going to get you a lot of attention and possibly votes, but you know there isn't going to be the money to fund it long term? Or do you take some of those funds And pay off the bills, pay down the debts, pay into the pension funds. Governor Pritzker has made the hard choice to do that. Banking on the fact that he still has enough popularity not to have to do the big flashy thing 
that in the short term makes everybody think you're great. So, you know, I mean, obviously we are a progressive, liberal, democratic station, you know, but it doesn't mean that if Governor Pritzker were doing things we didn't like that we wouldn't point those out. We are we are devoted Democrats, but we are not blind. And frankly, even when you point out something that's going wrong, it's not necessarily to say you're you're a lousy leader, you're a bad person. It might be the case, but you point out something that's going wrong so that you can shine a light on it and it can be fixed. This is why in these forums, these mayoral forums, I mean, I, I jokingly told Paul Vallis when I talked to him Friday that when we met to discuss the questions, I kept saying, no, the questions for Paul Vallis need to be, they need to be tougher. They need to be harder because a good candidate wants that. A good candidate wants you to ask them about their perceived weaknesses so they can address it. You don't do a candidate any favor by dancing around um, the criticisms. You don't do anybody any favors by being that. So it always amazes me, like when you saw Lori Lightfoot yelling at Mike Flannery because of a question he asked her. A good, in my opinion, a good legislator, a good politician welcomes the toughest questions you can possibly ask because then they can show off that they're ready, that they have an answer, and maybe they can win some people over. Imagine that. That's my uh, two cents on campaigning. Uh, When we come back, maybe uh, Tom Tunney can give us his two cents on campaigning. We'll be back after this. There's no excuse to miss Joan Esposito. It's number one on my stereo. Live, local, and progressive. You can listen to her daily at WCPT820.com on your computer or phone. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT Willow Springs is powered by ComEd. See how ComEd is preparing for a clean energy future at ComEd.com slash clean energy. Now back to Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. There is a lot of turnover that's about to happen in the Chicago City Council. Fifteen seats are being vacated, either because somebody has run for another office, won another office, or has simply decided to retire. There's going to be a lot of institutional knowledge that is gone. One of the people who has decided to hang up his hat is Tom Tunney from the 44th Ward. Tom joins us now uh, to talk about that decision. Tom, so so glad you're here. So nice to talk to you. Joan, it's been a while, uh, but thanks <laughs> for having me on your show. Okay. Yeah, it has it has been too long. But, you know, I really I really as God, I I don't want to make you feel like you're old, but I I feel like you're one of the elder states people of the city council. Um, What over the time that you have been in the Chicago City Council, what have you what have you seen change? What was it like when you started and what kinds of changes did you see over the years? Well, let me say that I have just completed my 20th year as alderman of the 44th Ward. You know, well before being alderman, I was 
and still am the owner of Anthater Restaurant. So that's been 42 years. So I've been active in community politics and obviously on the city council for many, many years. Um, so look back to 2003, um, I filled the retiring seat of Alderman Bernie Hansen. Um, and uh, during that time, uh, Mayor Daley was probably at, at maybe the height of his popularity. So um, I was literally appointed in January of 03 and won election with five, five opponents in February of 03. But it was all about addition. It was all about, you know, and I had worked with Mayor Daley on the city's Economic Development Commission and um, also was chairman of the Restaurant Association. So I'd been politically savvy, so to speak. And, <laughs> of course, a leader in the LGBT community back then, especially with the AIDS fight. Uh, but that being said, I was, you know, I'm 45, let's put it that way. Um, you know, I, I wasn't a youngin per se, uh, but I probably had a little more experience get in the seat than maybe a freshman Alderman would be today, uh, based on my experience in the community and civically. So, um, you know, there was the obviously Ed Burks, Bernie Stone, Gene Schulter, Pat O'Connor. Uh, you know, these were um, obviously some people had been in the council for a very long time. There was Joe Moore, who actually I've become very good friends with uh, uh, since he retired, but. Uh, the chemistry was different. Uh, I think there was more of a, a, um, a hold on the council. Uh, you know, the mayor daily had quite a, quite a, quite a block of, of, of aldermen that would, uh, I would not say rubber stamp, but because I don't think mayor daily ran, ran like that, but, you know, he was able to work with, every alder person, alderman at the time they called them, um, and say, what do you need for your community? I'm going to need you on a holistic basis, but I'm certainly going to make sure that we try to help every community around the city of Chicago. So um, there were things like uh, the one of the issues that I ran on for city council was to have a, a small business voice for the council, someone that would speak up on employment issues from a managerial side, someone who makes payroll every two weeks. Um, I, you know, I made it a personal mission to eliminate the head tax because I always felt employers should be rewarded for adding for their payrolls. You know, there was always Wrigley Field drama. Uh, back then, it was owned by the Tribune Company with uh, very limited night games. Uh, um, and no landmarking, one of the first things we did. So it's been exciting, and, and I, I feel so proud of serving the city, but specifically Lakeview um, and how much success has come our way, not only at Wrigley, but the Southport Corridor, Boys Town, and, of course, our beautiful lakefront. Um, now, how things have changed? Uh, well, we went through what I, – I think I served two terms with Rich Daly – then two terms with Rahm Emanuel, and now one term with uh, Mayor Lightfoot. Um, I, I think uh, the Lightfoot uh, administration is quite different. Um, I think the council, over the period of time that I've been there, has probably, in the in the uh, in the uh, effort of talking to you in Progressive Radio, it would seem to be on the outside more progressive. 
uh, more liberal uh, and such. So I think that that had been that has been happening. And, um, you know, I think the what what literally is happening right now, I think a lot of moderates or what some might pe- people would call pragmatics or cent- centrists like myself, you know, have decided that, you know what, um, it, it's time for a new generation. And I'm very comfortable with my chief of staff who will now succeed me. He's running unopposed in 44. His name is Bennett Lawson. And, uh, you know, he's um, been my chief of staff for 15 years. So I see a really good transition for Lakeview. I think the council that he will sit in, uh, God knows what, I think there'll probably be at least 20 new seats. And, uh, you know, uh, Mm -hmm. I, I think the tilt is going to the left. Okay, there's a lot of politics that I want to ask you about, but you mentioned something that I spoke about with Greg Hines. Uh, Brandon Johnson has one of the candidates for mayor, um, Cook County Commissioner, has uh, as part of his budget plan, has said that he wants to bring back the head tax. I spoke to Greg Hines about that, and he said that it was a terrible idea. However well-intentioned it first might have been under Daly, you know, it drove business away. Rahm Emanuel got rid of it. Now Brandon Johnson wants to bring it back. Greg Hines is uh, from Crane's Chicago Business shaking his head about that. But I asked Brandon Johnson about it, and he, I said, you know, the Greg Hines says that that's a job killer. And he was like, no, 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 it's not a job killer. You know, it's just a great way to raise money. We would limit it to, you know, only if after you add 50 employees after that, you know, there's a head tax. You are a small business owner as well as having been in the Chicago City Council. What do you think of the idea of a head tax, good or bad? Uh, Terrible, not even bad. Okay. Um, Again, I... I was the lead catalyst on reducing the head tax under Rich Daly and ultimately eliminating it under Rahm Emanuel. So this is this is really important to me. Now I'll give you a little history. The head tax was implemented by Richard J. Daly, not Richard M. Daly, and it was a compromise uh, when back in the day they wanted to do a city income tax. So in lieu of the city income tax, the head tax was initiated um, in the Richard J. Daley administration. So um, you also know that Brandon Johnson not only wants to reestablish a head tax, uh, you know, for whatever number, Um, you know, every business, small business starts as one idea, one person. And we need to we need to foster people adding to their payroll. There's enough taxes with employee employee related taxes without, you know, talking your accountant every quarter and say, what is this? Because I'm adding people to my payroll that I should be penalized. That to me, I mean, I think they're looking at maybe some of the, you know, the hundreds and hundreds uh, employees, the Amazon effect or, or sort. But mm-hmm. Brandon Johnson wants to reestablish a head tax and put in a city income tax and some other taxes. Um, And I just know right now we need to make sure our economy is on solid footing and we are talking to companies about how they can add to their payroll, how they can stay in Chicago and how they can keep this economy, which is fragile, uh, 
moving in the right direction. So this is not the time, in my opinion, to be telling business people um, that we're going to tax you more to either stay in the city or add people to your payroll. So that's the long and short of it as far as as far as I'm concerned. And it was critical that we got rid of it under, you know, as a time when I was alderman, because, you know, according to Cranes, I got a lot of credit for it. Okay, let's shift back to politics now. You were, uh, you've John, been... everything politics? <laughs> yeah, everything yeah. Politics. You know, you're absolutely right. Life is politics. But um, speak, let's just talk about Chicago City Council politics. Uh, you were head of the zoning committee. You were considered by many to be uh, an ally of Mayor Lori Lightfoot. And yet, when you announced that you were leaving the Chicago City Council, you also announced that you were going to very seriously consider a run for mayor. So what happened to that relationship? Well, let's put it this way. The, the mayor Lightfoot and I are leaders in the LGBT community. So I have certainly, and I think the majority of the residents that I serve had high hopes for her being able to coalesce the city, unify the city and move the city um, forward in a very competitive national environment. Um, I, I also have cautioned her in terms of in what I would call her demeanor about how she treats aldermen. And I think I've said this publicly before. You know, you as the CEO of the city are a unifier. We all have our, uh, you know, as I say as an employer, if I told everyone what I felt about them, I'd have nobody working for me. <laughs> you know, your job is to manage people and manage expectations and to encourage and make, you know, the political process exciting. And sometimes sometimes has role, but it's always praise in public and criticized in private, you know, and that's the axiom that I've always dealt with people, including the hundred or so employees that I have and the thousands that I've worked with. And so. You know, I, I think as a unifier, I think she came in with a prosecutor attitude that all of us in the beginning are ba- basically I'm going to clean up the whole shop here, whether it's the police department or the alderman. And, you know, it's a new way. It's a new sheriff in town. And that did not work for her. And I, I said, you've got to be able to treat people with respect, you know, as a zoning chair. Um, I did a lot of work on zoning. We did cannabis. We did uh, ETOD. We did casino. So I've been I've been a team player as far as city politics are concerned, and that's the way I look at it. What's in the best interest of the city? How do we make sure that aldermen are respected? Uh, you know, one of her one of her ideas was uh, getting rid of aldermanic prerogative, and I've cautioned her. I said the old, the people that know their communities the best are the aldermen. They have to work a community process about development, about affordability, about preservation. You know, we don't have the bandwidth, the 49 other uh, uh, aldermen, about what's happening in Pilsen. It's up to the aldermen. And and that alderman doesn't know about Lakeview. So we've got to rely on each other to do their job working with the Department of Planning, um, uh, you know, on a plan, on a plan for their community, on a plan for our city. And it's, you know, it requires collaboration. That move to rescind aldermanic prerogative, there was almost, I thought, an implication that 
um, because older people are so powerful, it sets up a, a system of corruption. Oh, you want that sign and you want it right away. Well, donate to my campaign. The, to me, the implication was that there was too much, shall we say, temptation with if the older person was the one to make the decision on things. And I know that I think a lot of people were a little uncomfortable with that implication, even though from time to time it has proven to be the case. But I think painting everyone with that brush uh, really, really rankled a lot of people. And then, of course, there was... From from the onset, Joan, from the onset. If you go back to her inauguration speech... Mm-hmm. Yep, I was there. She voted the audience to say, look, at, I'm going to clean up this, this this act from people behind me. And to me, you're there with your family, your spouse or whatever. How embarrassing is that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, and, and there's... She was adversarial from the start. Yeah. Well, there's three parts of government. The judicial, if someone is a bad actor... There's there's the inspector general, there's the U.S. attorney, there's the state's attorney. There's plenty of, of ways to investigate and to go after bad actors. Let that part of the system work its way out. You have to work with 50 aldermen to get the city moving in the direction that you holistically want to move it. You know, it seems and, that, you know. I mean, Rom and Rom might have had the same opinion with some of the aldermen. Rich Daly did too, but you know, you the the some of the infighting and some of the embarrassing episodes uh, at city council meeting is just not acceptable for a major city like Chicago. Yeah, I'm speaking with Alderman Tom Tunney. Uh, from Ann Sather's, um, and I'm waiting for the announcement that there will be a gluten-free cinnamon roll in the very near future. <laughs> We're going to continue our discussion right after this. Stay on top of the latest news in and around Chicago with Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive, every weekday afternoon from 2 to 5 p.m. on WCPT 820. This is WCPT 820, where facts matter. Attention, everyone. Don't turn that dial. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive, returns right now on WCPT 820. Alderman Tom Tunney has represented the 44th Ward for a couple of decades now. He is retiring from the Chicago City Council. By all accounts, he was an early ally of Mayor Lori Lightfoot. He has been... um, A representative of the gay community, a representative of the business community, um, a solid moderate in the Chicago City Council. I have to tell you, Tom, uh, I was surprised when you endorsed Paul Vallis in the race for mayor. You and Paul seem like very, very different sorts of people. How did that endorsement come about? Well, I've known Paul Vallis probably since he was a budget director in the nineties, I believe. Um, we do not always agree, but I feel very comfortable with his priorities and what I think fits the current time. Um, I think that he has proven himself despite what some people feel that he is 
uh, a solid Democrat, moderate Democrat like me. So we have that in common. Someone who's fiscally conservative. I think we have that in common. And I think he's socially progressive um, in 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 a traditional sense. Um, So, again, we talked earlier in the show, you know, I'd considered running uh, for uh, mayor myself. Paul had considered running even four years ago. We talked. Um, There are a lot of things that we agree on. Um, I think my style is a little bit different. Um, And after a number of, you know, discussion parts, I felt safety was number one issue, temperament, um, ability, experience in in city government, uh, work with the public schools. Uh, You know, I just feel of all the candidates, that are on that uh, on that roster today that I believe he's the person that will be able to manage a lot of conflicting interests, whether it's business versus labor, whether it's, um, um, you know, can, can we afford to, you know, put our budgets together that is, is compassionate, but also fiscally responsible. You know, I think, his relationship with the police department is going to improve the morale of the police department, but still conform with the federal consent decree and bring policing forward uh, for the next generation. You know, I, I honestly think that was one of the reasons Mayor Lightfoot was so popular when she was campaigning about police reform. And I don't feel that pace is anywhere near where it should be. And I think it's I think the morale is at an all-time low, and I think it permeates through not only the police department but the entire city workforce. And I think somebody like Paul that can manage the progressive and the and the conservative, the business and the labor, um, and various cultural groups, including our gay community, um, I think he's going to be the person that can, you know, keep the ship moving in the right direction have a stable uh, business environment. I'm very worried as a business person of all the candidates, you know, it's, we just need to find more tax revenue. And I think as Paul does, we need to make sure we bring more people in the city, keep more businesses in the city, keep our families in the city with public education, or in some cases, the charter school stuff has been, you know, has been, successful in a lot of communities, but we need to make sure that someone has the balance that I think where the council is going further to the left, at least you have a chief executive that can manage a lot of competing interests. And I think he's of the, of the field. I think he's the most qualified and capable from day one to start day one on reorganizing city government. Well, in the interest of full disclosure, before we got into mayor's race territory. Paul used to do a regular segment with me, and I have a kind of a same attitude as you. We certainly didn't always see eye to eye, but we had interesting discussions, and I felt like I really explored his thinking and that he really listened to my thinking on on certain issues. Um, I had Paul on the radio again last Friday to talk about his race for mayor. And I asked him about this, so it's not like I'm going behind his back here, Tom. I said to him, you know, I get 
all these emails and all these newsletters, and I'm on the email list for a lot of different progressive groups in the city of Chicago around the state. I have never seen the the level of passion, fear um, that has been worked up in progressive circles about Paul Vallis. It, I mean, literally, I get these newsletters that are like, oh, my God, oh, my God, we have to organize anybody but Paul Vallis. And I asked him, I said, you know, why are progressives so afraid of you? And I also asked him what he could say to them to make them less afraid of him. And pretty much his answer was, you know, kind of if if progressives are afraid of me, they're probably listening to the attacks on me and not really looking at at my record. But um, I really am surprised by the level of. Um, again, I'm I'm searching for the right word. Progressives seem to well, be they, they more worked up they're about they're his candidacy than I have ever seen people be worked up about a candidate before. Why do you think that is? Well, I think if I can speak for without without channeling their feelings is, you know, that Paul is an, just an old white guy, you know, <laughs> we as a city are not going backwards. OK, so a lot of us in our community have worked very hard to have a progressive fiscal fiscal. No, this is what I'm saying. Fiscally responsible, socially progressive voice. I think the problem maybe for Paul is not just that he's older and white and and in some people's minds a step backwards, is that he has listened to all sides of the coin, conservative, right, left, and that's just not acceptable in in today's society, which I think is really harmful to democracy. You know, we've become very polarized, far right, far left, and people are searching for a middle voice. And... You know, that's kind of where I thought I was would could be. And I think getting back to this, I just didn't want to give up everything to do this mayor's job, including my restaurant company. You know, mm-hmm. so that being said, people are looking for somebody that isn't far left, isn't far right. But I think the criticism with Paul is he's been at events where there's a. Uh, uh, you know, a Republican group. And God forbid we talk to Republicans. Well, last time I checked, we're all Americans, you know, and I just feel we need to respect everyone's viewpoint and we can learn a lot by listening. In some cases, incrementally, um, you know, moving our agenda forward, you know, is what are they all saying? One step forward, one step back or one step forward, two steps back. This is democracy. And, you know, I think, you know, I, I just think that public safety and, you know, is number one, two and three issues that I that I see. But we have to have a Chicago mayor who is a Democrat that espouses to Democratic values, especially about women's right to choose uh, gender affirmity for the LGBT community um, and just safety to be able to honestly hold hands with my partner on Halstead or, or, or anywhere in the city, you know, and I think there's a lot of hard fought victories that they're, you know, the concern might be that, Oh God, we're going to step backwards. If we put Paul Vallis in, I think he's smarter than that. 
And I think he's more sensitive and compassionate than these people are alluding him to be. Well, thank you for that. And again, I'm sorry, I didn't, I don't recall. Did you say there was a date when the gluten-free cinnamon rolls were going to debut? Oh. I missed, I missed that. Well, maybe, maybe when I'm full-time back in the restaurant business, I'll, I'll be able to do a little bit more creativity. A lot of my creativity in the last number of years has been, you know, in the city council. And I'm forever grateful for your listeners, my my residents and my constituents and my employees for putting up with me for the last 20 years. <laughs> Tom, if the election were tomorrow, I know you think one of the people in the runoff would be Paul Vallis. Who would he be facing? I think, I think, here's what I think. I think with, with it, we have nine candidates. We have one a uh, white person, and we have one Latino. I think that bodes problems with a political equation that they're going to have a dogfight within the African-American community. I don't know if it just, I don't know if Mayor Lightfoot rises to that level, but, um, you know, sometimes we hear Chewy is falling and sometimes he's rising and Paul up and down. I think it, it I think it, you know, people, it's, it's going to be very close, but, um, you know, Mayor Lightfoot has a record that she should espouse to without going so negative. I think she has accomplishments that I've been part of. And, you know, people want positivity. They want optimism. You know the old saying, it's hope mm-hmm. and tomorrow's going to be a better day. And we are so blessed to be in the city of Chicago and to be in America. And I think sometimes we just take things for granted. And I just... I just step back. We'll get through this. The city is <laughs> hundreds of years old. We, you know, I, I remember back in the day when, you know, Richard J. Daly died and, oh my God, you thought the city was going to fall apart. Or when Harold <laughs> Washington was ma- elected, oh my God, the city is going to fall apart. We'll get yeah. through this and we will be hopefully stronger because at the end of the day, we've got to grow the population, grow the city is a lot of other cities are really growing and we're not. And that's a problem. Tom, thank you so much. I'm going to, you know, come to you from time to time to give us your perspective on the politics of the day. But I really appreciate you joining us today. It was great. Well, it's my it's my pleasure. Great talking with you. Bye bye. Mm -hmm. We are going to break for news and be back with more after this. The Rick Smith Show, live, weeknights from 8 to 10 p.m. Look at what's happening. The Rick Smith Show on WCPT 820. Everyone is talking about it. Chicago's progressive talk. Remember when you get to work to hop over to WCPT820.com or the TuneIn Radio app and stream The Stephanie Miller Show weekdays 8 to 11 a.m. on Chicago's Progressive Talk, where facts matter. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. The reason that I listen to you from the infamous other side, you will call a spade a spade, and if it's indefensible, you will not defend it. And you know what? I can respect that. A WCPT 820. We had a forum for all nine mayoral candidates on January 26th, and uh, we were very fortunate to have... Some great sponsors and underwriters. One of those was the owner of Oscar Iberian Rugs, 
uh, Oscar Tatosian. Uh, he and his company very, very generously underwrote the uh, lunches that we were able to have that day. And, you know, people know this company. Uh, it's been in business for um, 150 years. But what you may not know about Oscar Tatosian is that he is also the general consul with the Armenian consulate. Um, want to talk to him more about that. He is here now uh, on the radio with us. Oscar, thanks for being here. Oh, it's my, my pleasure. My pleasure to join you and uh, have a conversation about uh, uh, all sorts of things, whether it's Armenia or Chicago Civic Activities or our 100-plus-year-old business that my grandfather started. Thank you, Joan. Well, I didn't realize that you were also the general counsel with the Armenian consulate. Tell me what your duties are in that role. Yeah, I was appointed to that role in 2018, and the uh, government of Armenia, the Republic of Armenia, established an honorary consulate in Chicago for the Illinois and the surrounding states. It was, we did not have a consulate here. And my purpose is to promote trade and commerce between Armenia and this region, to represent Armenia with elected officials, you know, uh, promoting its point of view, its purpose, culture, heritage, of course, trade and commerce, like I said, and then also helping Armenian citizens here, whether they're students or families, uh, whatever, Mike, or travelers for that matter. Uh, for example, we had some students here and someone needed a physician, so I connected her with a friend at Northwestern. Then we had a group coming through, uh, uh, again, of students going to various states, and we got them through O'Hare and facilitated all sorts of different uh, different activities. You are well, the Consul General for a country that's located in... Uh well, what should we say? A very interesting part of the world near Iran, near Turkey. Um, a lot going on in that part of the world these days. Um, you know, the situation with Iran is tense. The situation with Turkey, they're a member of NATO, but it's been kind of tense. And certainly they have been suffering from incredible devastation from the um, earthquakes that have hit there. What kind of a relationship does Armenia have with its neighbors? Mm -hmm. uh well, technically, my position is an honorary council. They call it honorary council, not council general. And Chicago has 40 honorary councils and then 40 full councillors. Full councillors are larger countries, you know, England, France, China, India. Uh, smaller, smaller nations have honorary councils because the small countries don't always have a budget for a full councillor. But in regards to the geography of Armenia, and as you said, situated between Turkey Iran, Azerbaijan, and Republic of uh, Georgia. Uh, someone joked once, you know, this is uh, too small, too small piece of land, too much population, and way too much history. So, you know, <laughs> Armenia uh, uh, is uh, located on the plains of Noah's, of Mount Ararat, Mount Ararat, which is in Turkey, but Armenia borders right next to it. So we Armenians claim that we're the first Christian nation as a nation, and Noah's Ark landed historically. I was just going to say Mount Ararat is supposedly where the uh, Noah's Ark ended up. 
Exactly. So if you think about too much history and been there a long time, there's a lot of old. So there's some of those old animosities and tensions exist today. Well, I know there are tensions between Armenia and Azerbaijan. Talk uh, talk about what's going on there. There was some disputed territory that was historically Armenia. And then in the 1920s, Joseph Stalin gave it to Azerbaijan. And under the Soviet time, everybody sort of behaved themselves. But after, after those con- the Soviet Union fell apart, people started speaking up for their rights and wanted self-determination. And that's where the conflict started between Armenia and Azerbaijan in a land called Artsakh on the Gorna Karabakh. Currently, um, there's a blockade of Artsakh by Azerbaijan. And, you know, I'm kind of a I look for peace. I'm kind of a peaceful person, so I'm just praying and hoping that they find some peace there so people can enjoy their lives and, and prosper. So it's it's just a tough situation. And it's a tough part of the world. You have, you know, Russia with its influences, Azerbaijan with their interests, Azerbaijan uh, with oil interests, Iran, it's just super complicated. Super complicated. Do you feel that Armenia is under a lot of threat? I mean, is this possible that we're going to see another armed conflict here, or is it more of a Cold War-type situation? No, that's a good question. I mean, we did expect another uh, another armed conflict. You know, we heard that some things might start up in March again, but because of the earthquake in Turkey, people are talking and helping each other and just hoping that out of that tragedy, out of that terrible, what, 50,000 people perished, that people come to their senses and we don't need to fight anymore. We can find language, find a solution diplomatically. Diplomatic solution is the best way. And if I understand the geography, even though you share, Armenia shares quite a border with Turkey, the uh, earthquakes were located um, much south of that particular border. I don't believe, correct me if I'm wrong, was Armenia affected in any way by the quakes? No, not this time. They felt the quakes, but it didn't do any damage. We had a terrible earthquake in 1988. So that zone, you know, has been earthquake prone for centuries. So that's what the poor people suffered through today. Yeah, I I was reading about it. Apparently there are three big tectonic plates that all come together there. So it's a really, really volatile, volatile area. Do you get to Armenia often, Oscar? I do. I do. You know, pre-pandemic, I was there, you know, two, three times a year. Since pandemic, I've only been there once, but I'm supposed to go back in March. And the nature of my business, you know, importing, you know, hand-woven oriental rugs, you know, takes me to that part of the world, whether it's Armenia, Turkey, Pakistan, India. We can't trade with Iran. There's an embargo on Iranian or Persian rugs. So we can't even buy them in a third country and bring them in. So we don't deal in, we have Iranian ones, but we don't import them currently. So I've I've been able to travel to all these different countries and different cultures. And, you know, when you find peace, you you can find peace in commerce. But if people are doing business with one another, they find language. And I I didn't know that our conversation is going to be all about this, but I I just (laughs) want to share, you know, if people are doing business, communicating, getting to know each other on many levels, trusting, handshakes and business. You don't need to fight. You don't need to have a war. That's what I believe. Well, that 
That was the conventional wisdom, though there were certainly a lot of economic ties between Ukraine and Russia, and uh, that doesn't seem to have been much of a deterrent to Vladimir Putin. You know, everybody was like, you know, if, if Europe does business with Putin, it will it will make him less likely to invade. That did not hold true. But I think I hope he's an exception rather rather than the rule. Um, so so tell me, um, you've had the, you this business has been in your family for one hundred and fifty years. Is it uh, do you have of uh, sons and daughters? Is it going to stay in the family going forward? Well, it's uh, we've been in Evanston in this location. We've been in the same location since 1928. Uh, we're 103 years old, established in Evanston. And then before that, if you refer to the 150, that was from uh, from Anatolia, where we started the business, my grandfather and his brothers. Uh, uh, I'm a single man. I don't have any children, but I have uh, seven nephews and nieces, and they're just finishing college and taking their first job. So I hope at some point some one of them or a few of them or their spouses or partners will take interest in the business. I'd like to see it continue, uh, this legacy business. But one of my nephews came up with smoking cigars with me. He's like, Uncle Oscar, is there room for me in the business? And I said, listen, there's room for everyone. But two suggestions. Number one, you get as much education as possible. And I don't care if it's a master's in tiddlywinks. You know, much education <laughs> you're interested in. And then you need to work someplace else first. Work for, you know, know how it feels to be, you know, part of a team mm-hmm. with, a, with a structure of a company. Then you can come to the family business. Now, I don't want you to come in family business and go, Uncle Oscar, you know, where's my desk? Where's my BMW? It's, it's not going to work like that. So, <laughs> Do you still have family in Armenia? Distant. Yeah, we have some distant relatives. But most of our family uh, came over, um, you know, for about 1912, 1910, 1912, after, before the massacres, World War One time. And then my dad... Um, came in 1958 from Turkey after he finished his uh, education in Turkey. So I'm first generation on my uh, wow. dad's side and second generation on my mom's side. That's what, what happened with me, too. My dad was a first generation, and I went back to the small town in Italy where our family was from, and my cousins on their married side, still have relatives there. But my family just, they, they all picked up and they all came over here. So I have like cousins of cousins, but nobody that's, uh, nobody that's direct. What, you know, before I let you go, I've never been to Armenia. I've been to a lot of places. I've never been to Armenia. Tell my listeners, what, what's it like there? What's the country like? It's, it's, Built on rocks, you know, it's, it's um, landlocked. We don't have any port. Like historically, we're a huge empire, but over the centuries, it's changed. But currently, there's no port. It's mountainous. Uh, there's some different climates from almost, uh, we can grow citrus and tropical to mountains. And the population's 3 million people. The capital is Yerevan which is a cosmopolitan Western Western city with wine bars and cafes and jazz mm-hmm. clubs. Uh, Armenia resides sort of in the east or the near east, but it's very much Western-looking. Uh, trades with the West, and Armenians have always been great merchants. The tech sector is growing. 
their wine sector is growing in importance. And historically, Armenia is known for their brandy, their brandy, Mm. which we call cognac. And Winston Churchill was a famous fan of Armenian brandy. And the story goes that he drank Armenian brandy at one of the conferences with Joseph Stalin and Roosevelt. He liked it so much, so for the rest of his life, Stalin would send Churchill a case of brandy either a month or something, and he was a great drinker, and uh, he enjoyed wow. the brandy. So we're well, we'll, we'll all have to, I'll have to try that and get back to you. Oscar, thank you so much for talking with us. Thank you so much for your support of WCPT. It is, uh, it's, it's a real pleasure to have you here. Thank you. Thank you. Oscar Tatojan, Honorary General Counsel of Armenia and owner of Oscar Aspirian Rugs uh, and a supporter of WCPT. We're going to take a break and we're going to be back with more after this. Need a new social media account to follow for progressive politics? WCPT 820 is your best source for both progressive politics and programming. Give us a like on Facebook and a follow on both Twitter and Instagram. You're listening to WCPT 820 because facts matter. Now back to Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. There is going to be another mayoral discussion. It is going to be at the hideout. It is going to be tomorrow. Our good friends Marge Halpern and Tom Moss are going to be there. It is a progressive event. Progressive candidates are going to be interviewed by them. Um, let's, Marge Halperin is here to tell us more about the event. Marge, uh, give us some more information. Hi, Joan. Happy to be here. Yeah, there's two key things to know. First of all, uh, we've narrowed the field to three candidates that uh, our Indivisible Chicago Alliance members have, uh, identified as viable, uh, progressive candidates. So we are interviewing only Chewy Garcia, Brandon Johnson, and Cam Buckner tomorrow night at the hideout from 5 to 7. Each candidate will get 30 minutes. We, we've all watched these uh, so-called debates and forums that get um, have more fireworks than facts, right? Everybody does their talking points. And we think with a longer interview format, we'll be able to have – Uh, a meatier discussion with each of the three. And uh, the reason we're narrowing it to three is the other thing I think that's an important point here. Um, We are lucky to have many candidates espousing progressive ideas. And we have a lot of choices as progressive-leaning voters. But who's going to make it to the runoff? Who's going to be the best candidate for us in the runoff if they're to face uh, Paul Vallis? Uh, for example, or Lori Lightfoot, or maybe Lori Lightfoot is a candidate some people think is progressive, but our members don't, and we didn't invite her. So it's a little different than some of these other forums, right? Yes, and uh, correct me if I'm wrong, I believe WCPT is one of the sponsors of the event, and I think, Marge, we are going to record it and play it this uh, Saturday after Edwin Eisendrath's show. I don't know if anybody, if you, if you have confirmation of that. I've been talking with the with the station, and that was the last word that I got. That's true. You are exactly right. We are recording it, and the WCPT is a 
uh, co-sponsor of the event, and we're delighted to have the station there. And we'll broadcast the show the next this coming Saturday at 4 o'clock. I know that um, you sometimes uh, write different questions depending upon the candidate, but is there one question you're going to ask all three people? Oh, there are several that we're going to ask all three. That's a good question. Um, one question we're going to ask uh, that we expect no one else will ask is uh, the, the gist of it is you are running as a progressive. Why? How do you define progressive and what makes you the leading progressive candidate in this race? So that, I want to hear somebody, each of them talk about that. That's a really interesting question because I have I talk to people about that all the time. And progressive doesn't mean the same thing to every every person. Everybody seems to have their own specific definition. So if somebody's going to call themselves progressive, that's smart. Okay, you 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 call yourself a progressive, but what does that mean? That's that's terrific. And if people want to attend, how do they how do they show up? Uh, it'll be at the hideout at five o'clock. We ask that you reserve tickets in advance uh, by going to the hideout website, uh, hideoutchicago.com, and um, you'll see a link there to order your tickets. It doesn't guarantee a seat, but it helps us plan for the size of the crowd. Um, it does guarantee you'll be you'll get in, but it doesn't guarantee a seat. There'll be some standing room also, but we do urge people to get tickets. It is filling up fast. Uh, hideoutchicago.com. If you can't attend, as I said, it'll be broadcast at 4 o'clock, and CPT will also have it available uh, after that as a podcast. We'll be streaming it on uh, the Indivisible Chicago Facebook page also. And if you're looking... Streaming it live as it happens? Yes. Excellent. At 5 o'clock tomorrow night. And if you're looking for other resources, Indivisible Chicago has two more if you go to IndivisibleChicago.com, you will see Paul Vallis uh, prominently on our homepage with a red circle and a line through. <laughs> Excuse me. <laughs> because we think he's a danger. That While Indivisible Chicago has not made an endorsement in this race, we are united in our concerns about uh, his close ties to the FOP and many uh, his uh, support for vouchers uh, for public schools and his uh, fear-mongering about crime at the expense of the safety of residents and that's sort of all those things. And so you can read our document, The Truth About Paul Vallis, by going to IndivisibleChicago.com slash Vallis, and we have a document there. We also prepared guidelines, progressive guidelines, under the heading of what Chicago needs and deserves. These are our guidelines for evaluating the 2023 candidates on progressive values, uh, investing in all neighborhoods, making equity the guiding strategy, a public safety system that protects all communities, embracing all residents, safe, affordable communities, and being transparent and inclusive throughout government. So we have some details about that, and I urge people to come to IndivisibleChicago.com because we know that the undecided is right now uh, the leading candidate in a lot of polls. And also, I want to remind people this event is free. You don't have to pay for a ticket, but you do uh, need to register to make sure you get in. Marge Halperin, Tom Moss, tomorrow at the hideout. It is going to be interesting. Thanks so much, Marge, for coming on and talking to us. Sure. Thanks for allowing me to update.
Always a pleasure. We are going to take a break. We are going to be back with more right after this. Can't listen to Joan Esposito? Surely you can't be serious. Live, local, and progressive in your car today? I am serious, and don't call me Shirley. Don't fret. You can still listen to her on the TuneIn app on both your phone and computer. Whoa, you feel that right away. It's just refreshing. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT Willow Springs is powered by ComEd. See how ComEd is preparing for a clean energy future at ComEd.com slash clean energy. Now back to Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. Once a month, I get together with the former television news director for Channel 9, Jennifer Schulze, and the former Chicago Sun-Times and Tribune editor Mark Jacob, and we talk about not just the news of the day, but how it is being reported, the good, the bad, and the ugly. As I told you at the beginning of the show today, one of the things that I found um, really upsetting was this open letter that's been written by at least 180 contributors to the New York Times calling them out on on the way they cover trans issues and pointing out the fact that they have been so negative so often that their articles are actually being cited in court cases being brought in various states that are trying to restrict or eliminate gender affirming care. Um, We have a lot to get to today, but because I started the show with that, uh, Jennifer and Mark, I'd like you guys uh, to weigh in on this. I've been, just as a matter of clearing the air, I have been complaining about the New York Times for quite a while now. They are, I think, the biggest purveyors of whataboutism that um, are around in the news media world today. But, you know, maybe that's just me. You know, maybe you guys think the New York Times is is doing it just exactly right. Okay, who wants to start on this? Jennifer, you want to take the reins? <laughs> Absolutely. I'm ready to go. <laughs> All you right. Know, I think anyone who anyone who's listened to Mark and me and you on this show and our little get-togethers knows that while I think we all do respect aspects of the New York Times, that we also have areas of concern, right? And, um, and this is one, and um, we've all seen it. Uh, they've been writing op-eds and news stories with an anti-trans lens for over a year. And I think it's uh, not a good thing. And I'm really glad that so many people, the last time I checked, 8,000 plus people had signed on to this letter that started this morning with about 1,600 people. Oh, it was 180 when I worked for the New York Times. Yeah. uh, Yes, excellent. Yeah. yeah. So um, it's a problem, but let's be honest, they have a lot of problems. They've still never done to anyone's knowledge, a look at their coverage of the Iraq war. I mean, so, and they still haven't said anything about, did they get all that, that news coverage in the 2016 election from the now 
arrested FBI agent. You know, there are a lot of big stories that the New York Times has not um, uh, delved into their coverage about. And my guess is this will be handled the same way. Mark, what do you think? Well, I think it's anyone who thinks that the New York Times is a liberal newspaper is not reading it. And, <laughs> and, it, and, and this is one of those things where, and I do read it, you know, because it's, it's very good at many things, but but it's definitely either center or right of center, I think. it's. I mean, it, and its takes on things tend to be, you know, very much, um, you know, they just, they're really big on what about ism and they're really big about, on, you know, on, on treat, treating Republicans equal to Democrats, even when the Republicans are doing terrible things. And they also tend to, they do what, um, what um, Jay Rosen, the NYU professor who's a terrific media critic, calls the savvy style, which is they, they view politics as, as uh, tactics. They don't view it as, you know, whether, whether how it affects regular people. They view it as, is it smart or not? Which is why they did a recent story about Ron DeSantis where they were talking about him building his brand. You know, so so they're covering fascism from a marketing perspective, and I, I just view that I view that as ridiculous. I view, I view that as, and whether they something like a political spin industry publication, or are they a general interest publication that's supposed to be paying attention to what's happening in our country? Uh, I, I think they're pretty pretty bad that way. And I, just one thing about the trans thing is that, you know, you don't have to be pro transgenderism. You just have to be pro tolerance. You just have to have to let people. Be the best person they can be based on what they want to be. I mean, it's it's just not that hard, and I and I don't understand why people can't see it that way. And New York, but the New York Times wants to you know accept the whole wants to accept the culture war you know narrative that's been you know laid out for them by the right. There was a wonderful TikTok well, that unfortunately had way too much swearing for me to put on the air, but it was a woman basically saying, you know. Um, she's probably younger than me, maybe older than, than you guys, but she was saying, you know what, old people, uh, younger people look at gender and sexuality differently. They view it as a spectrum and you know what, that's okay. And you don't have to get upset about that. You know, I mean, I'm cleaning this up tremendously. Um, but it just was like, you know, like, what do you care? Why do you care? You know, let people, you know, sort of like what you just said, Jennifer, you know, leave it alone. Let people do their own thing. Um, it, it just seems to me it's it's kind of the same mentality, I think, um, that we see with the lack of abortion care. It's that um, it's like government as as big brother or or worse yet, government informed by some sort of twisted Christian nationalism. Jennifer, I interrupted Hi, you. Go ahead. Right. So, so, the, so the party well, opposed, that opposes big government is suddenly wants to ban drag shows. I mean, it, it's just crazy. And, and clearly, they're not the government. They're not the party that opposes big government. They're the party of big government. They they really want government climbing in your bedroom. They just do, and it's and it's alarming. I um, want to underline what Mark said. Two things, actually. The thing that Mark said about the fact that anybody who thinks that the New York Times is some left-leaning liberal news organization clearly does not read it and definitely doesn't read their opinion section. But the other thing is, I would argue for some time now, there is no real 
overwhelming left liberal media. I think on a good day, the media is center right at best. And, and I think that we in the media and everybody else let Republican extremists frame it as a liberal media some 40 years ago, and they have repeated it every single day and will until they drop dead. And it has become just, it's the kind of thing that nobody even questions it anymore. Well, we've heard it so many times, it must be true. It is not. It is not true. The media, I mean, there might be some left publications out there, but they are few and far between and do not have the reach. Let's remind everybody, the biggest cable network in our country is Fox. Um, so when people talk about the mainstream media in a critical way as it's left, I just want to scream and say, you're kidding me. More eyeballs are watching extremist right-wing Fox cable than any other uh, broadcast media in the country. And um, I think it's all part of this. Republicans said this. They could keep saying it. And as you guys have heard me say a hundred times on our get togethers, I think the Republicans and the extremists in their party are winning the media war. I think they won it a long time ago. I think they win it every day that the media is afraid to to speak truthfully, like Mark said, who in the world writes a headline about Ron DeSantis's brand when he is banning books about Roberto Clemente? I'm <sighs> sorry, liberal media? Huh. Yeah. <clears throat> we need to, <clears throat> excuse me, we need to take a quick break. Jennifer Schulze, Mark Jacob, and I are going to continue this discussion. If you would like to join the discussion, give us a call, 773-763-9278, 773-763-9278. We will be back with more after this. Podcasts of Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive, are available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and SoundCloud. Just search WCPT 820. Chicago's Progressive Talk, WCPT 820, where facts matter. Don't turn that dial. A dangerous mistake to make. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive, returns right now on WCPT 820. I am joined by former Channel 9 News Director Jennifer Schulze, former Chicago Trib, and Sun-Times editor Mark Jacob. We get together once a month to, to talk about media and I don't know if you guys listened to the it was the House House Accountability and Oversight Committee hearing that took place last week. And it's one of those hearings that was uh, called by the new Republican leadership and uh, um, AOC, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, made a great statement. The the Republicans called in Twitter officials, and ostensibly it was, according to her, that they didn't get their way on a ruling and they wanted to hold Twitter to account so that next time anything they wanted to do on social media would be approved. And she ended uh, the beginning of her statement, her very, very passionate statement, by saying, if anybody thinks that social media is left-leaning, if anybody thinks that social media 
doesn't cater to the right. Just the very fact of what happened at Twitter, because, you know, like there was um, testimony that um, when Donald Trump violated their standards, instead of sanctioning him, they changed the standards to accommodate him. And we have this myth. Maybe it's just promulgated by Fox, this myth that somehow the mainstream media is out to get the right, is unfair to the right, just doesn't give the right the same kind of treatment that they give the left. And it is completely and totally untrue and unprovable if you really look at the coverage. Um, I don't understand. Do you think it's because Fox is, as Jennifer said, the mainstream number one viewed uh, cable network and they're promoting this idea and people are just absorbing it? Jennifer, what do you think? Well, I think it's it's um, a political strategy um, and it all is also a myth, but it's it it started as a political strategy um, and Everyone who's anybody in the party at any level um, talks about the media in this fashion under every circumstance. Um, Now, they still say, yes, I'll come on, meet the press. But as we've talked about before on this show, um, even when they go into the so-called mainstream media lion's den, they still rule that they still win because anytime you give an opportunity for someone to come on and say their bit, um, that's a win for them. And anytime they come on and argue with mainstream media, and I'm using air quotes here, um, that's a win for them too, because that's part of this political strategy. Tell everybody that the media is left. Tell everybody that the media is the other, isn't, doesn't like us. And I'll show you, how serious this is for me. I'm Ted Cruz or I'm Rick Scott or I'm whoever, because I'm going to go toe to toe with them. And yes, they're going to call me out and fact check me, but I'm going to show you how strong I am. You know, I, I do get a sort of a kick, but I'm also aggravated every Sunday morning by the people who are like, oh, Chuck Todd really pushed back on that. Margaret Brennan really pushed back on that. Republicans want them to do that. That is part of the political strategy to create this myth that you were talking about or to further reinforce the myth. Um, and I, I don't know what we do about it. I guess you can continue to call it out, but, but um, it's kind of taken hold for quite a, a, a number of years now. And, um, I, I think it's a, a, a terrible thing for the media and the media, because of it, has also makes terrible decisions like we've talked about before. Reporters don't want to have a swarm of right wingers come after them on Twitter, God forbid. So they go out of their way to not be confrontational, to, to fa- they don't fact check. A lot of them do what we've talked about before, stenography, journalism. And I think um that's just helped the right if, if, if you just understand that everything that the right wing does is intended to increase their money and power we will we'll understand american politics in this country much better 
because they don't have sincere concerns that the news media is too far to the left. They're working the refs. They're trying to get the news media to, you know, to be intimidated and, as, as Jennifer pointed out, kind of pull their punches and not and not be confrontational when they lie. And the, and the secondary thing, they're trying to isolate their own supporters. They're trying to get their, their own viewers to not believe anything but them. And if they can get them in that silo where, they, where they're not looking at a variety of news outlets, so they're just, you know, believing Fox News or Newsmax or OAN or whatever – then they've won. And so, so, so this whole thing is, it, you know, where did it come from that, the, that uh, the right is complaining about the liberal news media? It came from the right wanting to increase its money and power by making people not believe journalism. That's, that's what I think it is. Well, that might be the motivation of the right, but what's the motivation at the mainstream media? We were just talking about the New York Times. What kind of discussions do you think are taking place behind the scenes there, if any? Jennifer, you want to go with that? I don't I don't think anybody's talking about it. I, you know, I, I just think they see what happens um, when people step out or, um, you know, there's a herd mentality to be sure. And, um, you know, for years now, if somebody misbehaves, says something inappropriate or rude in a press briefing in the White House, just think back. I wish I had an example right at the tip of my tongue, but I don't. But just, you know, the t- afterwards, how people would say, why didn't anybody else in the room stand up and say something? Why did they let him do that? It happened yesterday. This reporter for Newsmax, again, major air quotes, because there are no reporters at Newsmax and Newsmax is not news. It's just max extremism. Um, just blurted out to the press secretary, is Joe Biden woke? Um, that it's become, it's like performance art. It's mm-hmm. not, it, it, and I think r- if there are regular reporters, there's so many things happening that they don't, A, they're, the places they work for are owned by wealthy Republicans in most cases, right? Or on their board. I mean, thinking of, you know, Mr. Malone, who sits on the board of CNN and is apparently leading, you know, or pressuring the changes there. Um, they're not going to stand up and say, God darn it, unless, you know, there has to be some sort of a movement. And I just don't see people are worried about job security. People do not, you know, the people who do stand up and say stuff, they get doxxed, they get threats, they get people, especially if they're women reporters, they get people showing up at their homes and threatening them. It's a really awful situation. And it's hard to find um, uh, brave truth tellers, I think. It shouldn't be so hard. I don't know why you went into journalism in the first place if you're going to let. But this is the journalism we have. This is the world that is. These are the people that are covering the news in this very complicated time. And I think it is not good for the country. Not at all. I think that the people have figured out that the journalists have figured out that the best way to get ahead in Washington, for example, is to. You know, is to take this real middle position where, you know, you give everyone their due, give everyone their say, and you move on. And you don't make any kind of value judgments about whether someone's telling the truth or not. 
or about you know or or, or about what pol- the impact of policies actually is, and you just you know you just turn yourself into like you know you're the referee and they're they're playing the game, and and that's a safe way. And I think that uh, unfortunately a lot of journalists are safe, and it's hard to stick your neck out. And look at Jim Acosta when he when he did when he did you know aggressive good journalism during the Trump administration, they took away his credentials. He had to fight to get them back. And, and you know, and, and I'll bet that didn't make him any more popular in the executive suites of CNN. I'll, I'll bet it didn't. And it's really important for it to remember that when you talk about the liberal news media, yeah, most journalists, I would say, the journalist frontline journalists in the trenches, are probably left of center. That's because, frankly, most college graduates are, are left of center. So it's that's not a big shock. But when you look at who the owners of these media outlets, you would find they're right of center, mm-hmm. overwhelmingly. I mean, look at look at Elon Musk. Look at at CNN. Look at look at all these people who own. Look at all these hedge funds and who own local news outlets. Uh, I mean, look at Rupert Murdoch. I mean, it, journalism by and large in this country is controlled by right wingers. It is, and, and, and it's run by them. And the it idea, is. Oh, it's on the, it's the media is is liberal. It, 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 it's it's a myth that helps the, the people who don't want you to know the truth. We have a couple of callers who want to join and that the conversation. Comes back to my point. Go ahead, Jennifer. Finish. Oh, go ahead. Sorry. No, go ahead. Um, let's go to the phone lines. Lady B, uh, Rose from Chicago, wants to join our discussion about media. Go ahead, Rose. Hey, John. Hey, I just wanted to point out that even um, something like PBS, which over the years, you know, people come to trust, in their effort to appear um, neutral, they seem to give equal weight to a story about something that's alleged, even allegedly criminal that the right wing does to something very minimal that the Dems do. Like, obviously, the, the classified docs of Trump versus Biden, they don't even point out the clear differences. And it's just so annoying. It's like you, you think you're going to get get the truth and, and you get nothing from them. You get, oh, both sides do it. Yeah. It's really frustrating, and it doesn't feel like you've gotten good information. Rose, thank you for that comment. Uh, let's go back to the phone lines. Jim is calling in from Chicago. Hey, Jim, you're on with me and Jennifer and Mark. How are you? The story that got me last Tuesday was uh, Trump's social account where he makes a veiled uh, threat and a veiled uh, accusation against uh, the governor of Florida that he was drinking with underage girls and Apparently, they fleshed it out where he was a teacher somewhere in Georgia. And a couple of girls came at, what is this old dude doing here? My point is, I don't think that the sand has gotten in the mud with him right away, but I imagine he will over the next two years. He'll have to, because uh, Trump has no fear of uh, casting dispersions at any one of his, if it was his wife, you know, if it was threatening him. <laughs> yeah. But but all I like to say is I enjoy I really enjoy this hour, but I, it reminds me of a Cole Porter song. Anything goes. It seems like that song should be played. Anyway, you guys have a great night. And thank you. Thanks, thanks. Uh, you know, there's been a lot of writing about DeSantis, and clearly he is not responding to the goads that he's getting from Donald Trump just yet. But a lot of the conservative people that I'm reading say, you know, yeah, it's a great strategy for now. But if he really does want to be president, he can't do it forever. And how things are going to change when that happens. 
Um, the perception seems to be that people are really frustrated, like Rose said, with in with mainstream media. They're really they're really frustrated. And I think, Mark, it might have been you who said this in one of our earlier discussions. Rather than covering politics like a sporting event or um, a branding event, we should really be focusing on covering democracy. You know, just take the Dem and the R out of it. Just look at who's moving in a democratic direction and who is moving away from democracy. Now, having said that, set that up, we can't continue because we have to take a break for news. Um, when we come back, Jennifer Schulze, Mark Jacob and I are going to be joined for a bit by Phil Rosenthal. You know that name. He used to, well, he's done a lot of writing on a lot of different subjects, but spent a lot of time analyzing television for the Chicago Tribune. We are going to take a break and be back with more discussion right after this. This hour of Joan Esposito Live Local and Progressive is brought to you by Team Hawkberg. If you want to buy a house or refinance a house, call 855-56-DAVID or visit 56david.com. Joan Esposito, Live Local and Progressive on WCPT 820. Once a month we get together to talk about how reporters are doing their job. Jennifer Schulze is the Channel 9 News Director. Mark Jacob was an editor for the Trib and the Sun-Times. And uh, for this next couple of segments, we have the guest that we love to talk to, Phil Rosenthal, who for 16 years wrote for the Chicago Tribune. Welcome, Phil. How are you? I'm I'm all right. You know, I'm as disturbed <laughs> as anybody else these days. But, you know, overall, I'm all right. You know, I have to I have to tell you, apropos of nothing, um, I pulled up. Um, just some background on you and images for Phil Rosenthal, Chicago Tribune came up and the very first picture is Mark Gian Greco. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. So I guess uh, you guys, what, twins separated at birth? No, I, I, I don't think he'd appreciate someone saying, oh, that uh, they look alike. So I'll, I'll go with that. I wouldn't mind. But um, no, I, that we, we are not separated at birth. We were separated from the beginning, you know. <laughs> Mark and uh, Jennifer and I get together once a month. Yeah. We have been talking uh, about um, mainstream media. As um, you may have seen, Phil, there was an open letter uh, that was released, uh, an open letter to executives at the New York Times saying, you know, you guys have to you have to be better at your cover coverage of trans people, that you're so anti-trans that, you know, your work is being cited in lawsuits trying to rein in gender-affirming care. Um, You've been been a part of the mainstream media, the Chicago Tribune, for 16 years. How do you see the lay of the land right now, Phil? Part of the mainstream media in Chicago going back to 1996, but and outside Chicago for longer. But I would say... You know, here's the thing, and, and, and it gets lost in all this talk, but I heard you guys in the last half hour. And, you know, reporters may at some level be left-leaning vis-a-vis the broad spectrum. I mean, they're middle of the road by and large, but that cast them is, is somewhat left in some ways. But the, the organizations themselves are, are very much right-oriented. You've got to look at the ownership, you know. Uh-huh. I think, uh 
you know, the, the truth is, as a reporter, and you talked about reporters not speaking up in certain situations and, and not asking certain questions, you can only be as brave as a and I, I have personal experience with this. You can only be as brave as a reporter as your bosses allow you to be. And, and, and get to a certain level, people, it's, it's just very hard to, you can, you can want to ask things, but you ultimately, you get, you get slapped down at some point. And if your bosses aren't there to, to back you up 110%, you, 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 you don't get the chance to do it again. So it's, it's a very difficult thing. These are corporate owned, uh, sometimes owned by, by, uh, venture capitalists and this sort of thing. It's, it's not, journalism isn't necessarily seen as anything else but a product. And that's where you get into this branding stuff. It's, it's, it's a, what's changed in media, I think in, in the last 20 years is that the compression of ownership with corporate ownership, you don't have independent voices. You don't have independent uh, ownership of, of a lot of these publications and, and news outlets that, that enable them to rise above, the pressures of the marketplace and the marketplace is, is again, it's a, it's a commercial realm and, and it's not necessarily about journalistic standards. It's interesting that you say that Phil, because while we were on the air, I got a text from a listener talking about the corporate media. You know, I think that's what you just described is the way a lot of people feel about it right now is it's not, it's not a bunch of scrappy kids trying to bring you the truth. It's, um, you know, it's a big money-making corporation. Um, Mark, you want to, Phil kind of echoed what you said. Mark, you want to jump in there? Yeah, it, it, that's just the way to, to view it. I mean, it's, it, I, mean there's, I, don't, I don't see any alternative view than the fact that, that journalism is a business in this country and that it's a business owned by and large by very rich people and mostly very rich people who lean right. I mean, that's just, I think I just stated some facts. I mean, if anyone wants to dispute them, feel free, but I, I don't see how you can. And, uh, and uh, yes, I, I just love that what Phil said as far as, you know, you can really, uh, a reporter can only be as brave as that reporter's boss is. And that boss can only be as brave as their boss is. And, and, and after a while, you know, you just keep start beating your head against the, the wall and you, you know, you can't get this story published or, or you're being complained about whenever you, you know, you, you ask hard questions of this politician. It's very hard. And that's why I really admire journalists who are tough and, and brave about that and do, you know, beat their head against the wall because it's important. But uh, there's uh, this consolidation of media in the hands of, you know, very powerful, very rich, very right-wing people. You should alarm everyone. I mean, you know, when you see, when you see I was watching MSNBC today, and, and you know, they, they've carried Nikki Haley's speech just about in full, which mm-hmm. is fine. I mean, I, I don't dispute that. I mean, she's running for president. It's okay with me. But then right away or like within a few minutes of that, they had, you know, John Bolton on. And and I, I said, oh my God, what am I watching? Am I watching Fox or am I watching MSNBC? And then these MSNBC doesn't want to be. They seem to not want to be a left of center outlet. They, in a lot of ways, they just want to be, you know, center. And that's you know I, that's okay. But I'm saying that there are very few choices for people who uh, have progressive viewpoints. Very few options for them for um, you know big news organizations that they can follow. It's a real problem. You know, it's um, <clears throat> it's interesting because um, we've talked about how, 
you know, there's a very conservative big investor um, who's now part of the CNN group. And they brought on Chris Licht, who was most recently executive producer for Stephen Colbert, um, to revamp CNN. And I, in the years I've done this show, I've always had an iPad open with CNN just in case there is some breaking news. And I have it's it's a it's a huge change. They used to be um, like MSNBC. They used to be 90 percent plus on politics and elected officials. And now uh, it's it's what CNN was when it started. When CNN started, you know, we had never gone live everywhere before. Ooh, it was great. We were in the courtroom. We were talking to the police, you know, but now everybody does that. Local news has been doing that for years. And CNN has seems to me to have gone back to that model where it's the murder of the week, the trial of the week, particularly if the victim was white and even better if it was a white woman. And, you know, now um, I would say it is maybe it feels to me like it's maybe maybe still 60 percent, you know, news and politics. But it is dropping at an alarming at an alarming rate. Um, and I don't think, you know, it is they may be revisiting their roots, but, you know, that's sort of like old news for everybody. Phil, I don't know. Do you pay attention to cable news? Have you who do you watch and what do you what do you think of them? You know, I've, I've kind of moved away from cable news. I, I, I do look at things online. I'm not you know, now that I don't have to do it for a living, I just find the, the repetition of it to be sort of unwatchable. And I and and I do think it's, it's less useful unless something is actually happening. Uh, you know, the other thing about cable news that I I. I I know this gets dragged out and it may or may not matter, but you know, it gets a lot of attention is focused on what cable news does. And and the people that watch cable news tend to be very mindful of it and, and, and influenced by it and, 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 you know, influence it in their own way. But you know, the audience, you take the biggest show in cable news and it's, it's uh, Tucker Carlson. He had an audience last week of about 3.5 million, which is a lot of people. But, but the, uh, the truth is the nightly newscast on the broadcast networks far exceed that. The least of them being CBS at like, I don't know, close to 5 million viewers. Uh, ABC and NBC, by the time you add them all in, it's about a little less than 20 million viewers. That's a lot of, of, of audience that, and, and maybe they're coming from the cable networks to some degree, but that's, a, that, you know, nobody talks about what they're doing. And, and honestly, I'm not watching it much either anymore. So uh, maybe that is the reason is nobody cares that much. But in terms of reach, you, you really, it's hard to get around the fact they're, they're, they're drawing a big crowd and nobody seems to, to pay too much attention to it. Jennifer, do you still watch cable news? Well, you know, I'm an unusual news consumer. (laughs) I have many sources of information because I don't, um, you know, you can't learn enough if you only have one or two or three or five. I I do it all. Um, So I, I was curious about what Phil was saying, and I'm on ad week right now. Looking and um, yeah, eight million people watched World News Tonight uh, 
in the last week of January, 8 million people. And he's right. Those shows are still um, pulling it in. CBS Evening News with Nora O'Donnell's averaging 5 million total viewers. NBC um, is, I can't find their total number. Oh, 7 million. 7 million people watching former Chicagoan Lester Holt um, every week. Um, the weeknight network newscast has not given up its, um, its power as a medium. And I would tell you, uh, some local newscasts have not either. Um, you don't, but Phil's exactly right. Whoever talks about that, we hear cable news, cable news, cable news, social media, social media, but, the the week weeknight newscast is still um, the the leader when it comes to eyeballs, and I do what, think it's interesting it? that although Fox is the largest cable, it still um, you know gets almost half of what uh, Nora O'Donnell is getting on the CBS Evening News. Well, why do you think that is? I mean, why why don't don't these nightly news shows, these more old-fashioned, half-hour, appointment TV kind of news shows, why don't they make more of an impact in the kind of the national conversation? Phil, do you have a, do you have a sense? Well, I, 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 well, I, I think that people... They're just not... I, my theory is they're not fashionable. They're not interesting. And when I was working in newspapers, you know, frankly, when they were on, I was busy, you know, whereas the cable news stuff is on in the newsrooms all the time. Uh, mm. but I, I think it's, I just think it's part of the conversation. I think that's thought of as sort of old, and, and maybe, you know, it's a mix. So they aren't, they're not doing opinion, you know, they're not as much, you know, if the opinion's there, it's, it's, it's woven into the fabric of the story in the, in the way that the, you know, other, other shows are. I just don't think, I think it's something that people just don't pay attention to. I think people got used to the idea that, that network TV news and network TV for that matter was dying. And yet it's a big, it still has, for reach, is tough to match. Jennifer, when you looked at that, did it give you any insight into demographics? Because I'm wondering if it is the, uh, it is, if it is my generation who is still hanging on to television news. Well, oh, yes. Um, yeah, it is. Um, most of the viewers are over 55, are 55 or older for network television. Um, in fact, it's pretty dr- dramatic. For example, total viewers of ABC News the last week of Jan- or the week of February 6th were 8,412,000, but age 25 to 54 was 1,328,000. So some 7 million more people over 55 are watching. Boy, that is so interesting to me. But you know what? That's always been the case with television. Older people have always been the most loyal viewers of tele- of most television news. I mean, as long as I've worked in television, and that's been a very long time, it's always been the older audience that um, was the preeminent viewer. So um, that doesn't surprise me. Uh, honestly, I'm kind of surprised that a million people 25 to 54 were watching it because was when you read all the media criticism, you could come away with the idea that people are either watching cable or getting all their news from social media. But some of them are actually watching the good old fashioned nightly news. 
and, and I just want to say, I, I don't have the most recent demographic information on uh, networks, but Tucker Carlson's show is, again, 3.5 million total viewers um, or average viewers. They did, In the 25 to 54 demographic that, that doesn't necessarily speak to TV news, but is the one that, that advertisers most are interested in, uh, or are most interested in, they had a 490,000 viewers last week in that demographic. Uh, while I don't have the most recent numbers for the uh, for the networks, I do have um, you know what they were doing for the last season, the 21-22 season, and for ABC it was 1.4 or 1, oh, 1.5 million uh, viewers in the 25 to 54 demo. For NBC it was 1.2 million in the 25 to 54 demo, and in and CBS. Uh, more than 800,000. So, again, the network's news in general skews old, you know, but, again, when you're talking about the younger group that is watching, the networks are still beating the cable senseless. Guys, we need to take a break. And those numbers don't include streaming. Yeah, Uh, or or other platforms. Um, We need to take a quick break. We are going to be back with Phil Rosenthal, Jennifer Schulze, Mark Jacob, and me right after this. Did you know you can text Joan at the same number you used to call us? 773-763-9278. Thanks to our texting sponsor, Camp Kupugani. Register today at multiculturalcamp.com. Text away. 773-763-9278. Think Theory Radio. Manipulating the masses is more utilizing propaganda, gaining a wide quadrant of the public, where crowd manipulation is more focused, like the divisionary tactics of these political parties. They utilize certain talking points and phrases to target specific groups that they want to maneuver and empower and, and get them to do their bidding. Think Theory Radio with Damian Perdue, Saturdays at 6 p.m. on WCPT 820. Because facts matter. You are listening to WCPT 820. This is Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. It is our monthly media discussion with former Trib and sometimes editor Mark Jacob, former Channel 9 News Director Jennifer Schulze, and we are joined for one more segment by former uh, Chicago Tribune writer Phil Rosenthal. I want to share with you guys uh, some of the texts that have been coming in. Um, this one, I'll put in a word for network news. Disclosure, I'm 70. Almost gave it up, but got bored with cable news and love Lester Holt. He does a great job. Also uh, got this one from Randy in Kentucky. 52% of Americans no longer have cable and have either put up an antenna or are cord cutters. You know, we used to read a lot, or at least I used to read a lot, uh, about cord cutters. Is that, I, I hate to sound like the old out-of-touch person I am, but is that still a thing? Is that, am I like too old to understand that mentality? Um, anybody, anybody got any insight yes, into that? Yes, that's a thing. Is it a thing? Yes, that's a thing. Yes, cable cable is dying a slow death. It'll probably be here for a long time. But, you know, anybody under 25 does not watch entertainment on a television, God forbid. And um, if they do, it's a one of those streaming kind of TVs that has, you know, certain apps on it. And you you click on the app. You know, you're not connected to um, the cable. So you've cut the cord. 
Um, and the news organizations have responded to that growth in that side of the business by um, creating these streaming news programs. And I've watched quite a few of them because I have one of those streaming TVs and they do a pretty good job of it. And uh, But we don't have numbers on that that I'm aware of because I don't believe Nielsen has figured out how to how to gauge uh streaming viewership. I could be wrong about that when it comes to news. But uh, yes, Joan, cable is a thing becoming a thing of the past. Wow. I'm sorry to tell you that. But it is. Streaming is going to kill some cable networks. I mean, it's it's already posing a real threat to regional sports networks that carry the teams because these, these arrangements they made with the teams were based on the fact they got paid both by, by being carried by the cable networks and then by selling ads. Well, they're getting carried less and less because fewer and fewer people are subscribing to cable. The thing about streaming and cutting the cord is you, you're essentially still putting together the old groupings of state of channels that you got, or a lot of them, uh, as, as streaming services. So, for example, if you don't have cable, you may still be streaming CNN. Uh, you may still be streaming uh, MSNBC and NBC uh, broadcast. You may see you're, you're probably still streaming uh, some of these other things out there, uh, and maybe more. You know, maybe more channels than not. But um, it's it's in a, it's a change in how people consume things. The, the truth is also with regard to cable. It may be down to, I don't know what the number is. Your, your caller said, your texter said 50%. It was never 100%. It was always, a, I don't think it got higher than 80% penetration on cable, but I may be wrong on that. It's, um, so, so, you know, the technology's changing. How people get it changes, but the platforms are what we're really talking about. I, um, I think another um, one that's been hurt by street cut cord cutting is ESPN, right, Phil? Hasn't ESPN well, really been- suffered from losing uh, cable subscribers? And Phil, what about yeah. Marquee Sports? With that that well, channel that was supposed to be all Cubs all the time? Is that you have to have cable to have that, right? Uh, that will, I think, uh, I don't know to what no, because you can get it through. I think YouTube TV, which is a streaming service. Uh, I may be wrong on that. One of the there is a way to get it through streaming services. I think that will increase over time. That's one of those regional sports networks I was talking about. Uh, with regard to ESPN, yeah, it has hurt them on one level. On the other hand, they sell Disney sells a ESPN Plus, so you can get that that's a lot of it from them. So it, it, it's a little of this, a little of that. As I say, it is evolving. These channels will, I think, the strong ones will continue to exist. The ones where they gave away the channel and hopes that that would help them eventually build an audience, I think those ones are vulnerable. And, and when they ask for price increases, it becomes a lot testier because, frankly, um, the business overall is in peril. Interesting. Phil, thank you so much for being a brief part of our media discussion. It's always fun when you uh, join our little media club. I thank you for being here uh, as part of your uh, as part of your day today. We thank you. Uh, We are going to take a break now. And uh, when we come back, Jennifer Schulze, Mark Jacob and I are going to continue. We have a number of callers. They're stacking up like planes over O'Hare. We're going to try to get to all those calls when we come right back after this. 
Stay on top of the latest news in and around Chicago with Joan Esposito. Live, local, and progressive. Every weekday afternoon from 2 to 5 p.m. on WCPT 820. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT Willow Springs is powered by ComEd. See how ComEd is preparing for a clean energy future at ComEd.com slash clean energy. Now back to Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. The lovely and talented former Trib and sometimes editor Mark Jacob and Channel 9 News Director Jennifer Schulze join me once a month and we do a big examination of the media. We have tons of callers who want to join the conversation. Let's go to Penny, who's calling from Lansing, Illinois. Hey, Penny, you're on with me and Jennifer and Mark. Go ahead. Hi, everybody. Um, I would like to encourage folks to listen to Edward Eisendraft on uh, Saturday afternoon at 1 p.m. He usually starts his show with a rant. Have you ever heard it? Uh, As a matter of fact, we have. Um, Those are barn burners, and he needs to publish them and syndicate them as a column. He does. He uh, He publishes them on Substack. Are you familiar with that? You go to Substack, Substack.com, and you can put in his name, and you can subscribe. He publishes at least one essay every week, and then that usually that essay is also how he often starts his show on Saturday. So it is, his writing is available. Well, that's good to know because, I mean, he, he just is so great with that. I mean... He says what I would say if I had a microphone. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks. Thanks for that call and thanks for that observation. And I want the rest of the audience to know that we did not pay Penny for that um, that uh, that little commercial comment about how wonderful Edwin Eisendrath is. He does a show every Saturday called The Big Picture. He writes uh, uh, at least one week. He writes an essay for Substack, you just put in his name and you can subscribe to his writing there. Uh, Penny, um, anything else you want to chat with before we uh, go on to the next caller? No, that's it for today. Thank you. Okay, thank you. <laughs> Let's go to John, who is calling in from Chicago to join our conversation. John, it's me and Jennifer and Mark. Please go ahead. Uh, hello. Uh, can you hear me? Yes, we can. Oh, good. Yeah, I, I uh, wasn't sure if I was the right. There may be other John. John. No, you're the John we want to talk to right now. Okay. <laughs> well, thank you. I, uh, I just wanted to say that, first of all, I really appreciate uh, your program, Joan, and also, uh, you know, the comments and input from Mark and Jennifer, because I, I can't agree more, I cannot agree more that... You know, media, I mean, I know it's because, in part, because, well, maybe most of the problem is it's become so consolidated and, and, you know, corporately owned. And uh, I really sympathize with reporters these days because, um, you know, investigative reporting is, is so critical to being able to even have a democracy. Um and it's become so much more difficult. But I, I grew up in northeastern Ohio, and I've been in Chicago since the 80s. So um, 
but in my in my traveling, I just remember there was very few radio stations. You know, I'd usually have the radio on, and you know, I'd usually look in for music, that kind of thing. But I kept getting Rush Limbaugh on on several different stations, and <laughs> and it made me realize. And as I've thought about it uh, over the years, a lot of the rural areas are getting radio that is extremely right wing. Um, I would even say, you know, off the rails <laughs> mm-hmm. but, my, myself. But, um, uh, you know, and, and a lot of the people I grew up with um, have been very influenced by that. You know, I, I there were quite a few family farms and that kind of thing. Um, and, you know, that they, they, you know, you're out driving a tractor all day long, listening to the radio, you know, kind of thing. And and there it just seems to me like a lot of the radio stations uh apparently uh at least from listening, you know, to Tom Hartman, he has talked about this a few times I believe, um that they've been bought up years ago. You know, you know, you you make an interesting point, John, because that's something that I've talked about. I know that's something Edwin has talked about, is that yeah. that's one thing that the Republicans and conservatives who were wealthy sort of figured out early on, you know, get control of media. Every town has a conservative radio station, but there are yep. only about seven or eight stations like this one that are democratic, that are progressive in their mission. It is um, uh, it is something that, you know, we have puzzled over why the people who who have the money to be able to do these kinds of things sort of aren't fighting fire with fire. I mean, you know, you've got the Sinclair buying up hundreds of local television stations and inserting their conservative messages. But you don't really see, you know, a lot of that sort of thing on the other side of the aisle. Um, I know that that's something we've all talked about. Uh, Jennifer, weigh in on that for for us. Well, uh, I hate to be Debbie Downer, but again, I believe the right wing has won the media war over the last couple of decades, and in part um, by buying as much media as they can and talk radio. Um, just it has made such a an impact on um, extremism and again it's a political strategy and um, thank God for places like CPT and I wish there were more of them you know I wish some of these rich Democrats would buy Fox Network you know and get we need more people who think that democracy and good journalism is important owning media properties that has not been in vogue for for folks like that and while like I said for decades Republicans are running around buying everything they could get their hands on Mm-hmm. Yep. I remember thinking as I ha- was forced to watch all those ads, that rich Democratic guy from Texas, Steyer, Tom Steyer, who decided like nobody knew him out of the blue. He was going to run for president. And I remember thinking, what a complete 
ego trip. What a complete waste of all of your money. You have absolutely no chance of winning, and you're spending all this money. And if you really, really want to bring about some of the change you talk about, you know, you know, buy a radio station, buy a television station, buy a whole bunch of them. And I just I don't understand why there isn't more of that on the Democratic side. Um, Mark, you want to jump in here? Yeah, that's clearly a problem. But I think also a problem was that, that that right wing radio, you know, in the Limbaugh days was just it just it, Limbaugh was really revolutionary because he had because he had he was such an unabashed misogynist and racist and just I mean, he didn't care. He didn't care about offending people. He he did the same thing Trump did, which is before Trump, that he made racists and women hater males proud and happy to be the way they were, you know, instead of, I mean, I, I feel like there was a general societal trend in this country 20 years ago that, no, you're not supposed to be racist and, you know, you need to get women mm-hmm. rights. And that was the overwhelming view of society. And Limbaugh created this, you know, this kind of clubhouse where people who didn't believe in that at all could be invalidated. And, and, and and here we see the results of it. You know, there's a lot of people, more people in this country who are, I think, that are overtly racist now than there might have been, you know, 15, 20 years ago. Overtly is, is the, the key word. Because mm-hmm. now it's OK. It's not um, yeah, there's not the same peer pressure to not espouse those views. Right. Right. And that's and and, and another thing that I mean, Limbaugh would. I mean, I thought he was pretty disgusting with the feminazis and all that stuff, but he, but he did introduce humor into it, and he was, and he was inter- introduced uh, some sort of entertainment values, and so I don't think that, and I hope that, and I think your show is interesting, and 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 you know, you have a laugh every now and then too, and it's kind of important to be entertaining and to be human, and you know, and, and to not and, to, and not turn everything into some sort of like a school board meeting or you know, op-ed session in a newspaper. I mean, we need to talk about the issues, but we need to talk about reality too. And and if we could get, you know, if we could grow a progressive radio network across the country, that that would, you know, fight back against what the right wing has been doing in the last few decades. Yeah. Uh, guys, we need to take a break. We are going to go back to the phone lines when we come right back after this. Need a new social media account to follow for progressive politics? WCPT 820 is your best source for both progressive politics and programming. Give us a like on Facebook and a follow on both Twitter and Instagram. WCPT 820, Chicago's progressive talk, where facts matter. Attention, everyone. Don't turn that dial. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive, returns right now on WCPT 820. It is our monthly media segment. Jennifer Schulze from Channel 9 News, uh, formerly of Channel 9 News. Mark Jacob, formerly of the Sun-Times and the Trib, uh, join me once a month, and we talk about the media, and we take your calls Let's go back to the phone lines. Steve is calling in from the Gold Coast. Hey, Steve, thanks for waiting. Yes, I wanted to raise a couple of points with regard to issues you've already discussed. And I I think part of this has to do with how we're defining conservative or liberal Democrat or Republican, because in terms of working in the media, certainly when you're talking about social issues, uh, the the industry is heavily dominated by people who are considered, say, liberal. 
But that's different than a lot of other things. So in other words, I, mean, I, I can pretty much guess what Anderson Cooper thinks about issues involving trans people, the gay community, um, race relations, and so forth. But uh, what does he think about the top marginal tax rate, given his income? And what does he think about inheritance taxes and all of these other things? So when we talk about, you know, liberal or conservative, what are you talking about? Because, again, I think uh, as far as the left and the media are concerned, they pretty much won the culture wars on that that front. But they've lost in terms of the other things, the things that many people, especially those who are concerned about things like uh, wealth gap in this country, real income, uh, what's happening to the middle class. Those things are things that don't get discussed. And if you want a case study, I mean, the 1996 Telecommunications Act, guess what? Nobody covered that for a reason. Because why in heaven's name, if you're a personality or a producer, would you go to your boss and say, I want to cover this? What could you possibly get out of that except trouble in terms of your future in the industry? So, yeah, it's not so much that there's a conspiracy. It's just some things don't get covered because there's nothing to be gained from covering it. But there's a lot to be lost. And and I do think that there that there is an issue with regard to um, the extremes sort of defining our culture today, because I agree that there's a lot more room to be, for instance, to be openly racist, um, given what social media has, has, uh, has given us today. But on the other hand, there are people who will label you as racist because you want to have an honest discussion about affirmative action in terms of uh, university admissions. I, I disagree with people who want to do away with those policies, but I'm not ready to cancel them. Or, or to fire them or to somehow berate them because they believe that. And, and I think that that's, we need to discuss both sides of that. Somebody want, Jennifer, you want to jump in there? Oh, boy. <laughs> <laughs> we've, given, we've given you a lot to talk about and think about. Oh, yes, yes. You know, I... I I don't want to be, like I said, Debbie Downer. Um, and I do think it's important when we can to build up um, media doing things right. And I think one example we see here in our fair city is all of the different outlets that are doing a bang up job covering the mayoral campaign and putting out voter guides and making information available in lots of different ways to lots of different people to find out about things. That is media doing a really important, good thing. Um, So I don't want to be always ragging on everyone. Um, That said, I know you had a forum. Please, no more mayoral forums. I do not. I, I, when, did, when did that become a thing? When did that become a thing? Did that happen four years ago? Did we have every single media entity in Chicago have a mayoral forum? Or is that new this year? And what is that all about? What do you guys think? Are there too many of them? Are they valuable? Are they... Somewhere in the middle, I don't know. I think yes to all that. There are too many of them and they are, they are valuable. Uh, but you're, you know, you're right. I think it's because we have, we have a great crop of candidates and, um, you know, the, Lori Lightfoot is fighting to keep her job. Other people are fighting to get their word, the word out. So I think that there's an appetite on the candidate's side to say yes to these. Because, you know, in the past, I mean, it was like, oh, if somebody announces they're having a, a big uh, forum, it's like the candidates don't want to do another one. So they say no to everybody else. But this time, I think everybody has something to gain from it. That's why I think they're multiplying Mr. Jacob, what do you think? Oh, I think that's clearly the case. Um, 
And, and I, you know, I haven't done a complete survey of, of what's available in the news media, but sometimes I think that these forums or the, or debates or I, I think you don't get really good answers and you don't get, you know, you don't get to the heart of the issues. It seems sometimes there's a real danger that it's all style and no substance. And, you know, I always liked it when news outlets would, you know, go through and find out what the candidates stood for on the issues. And, and I used to do this for the Tribune, you know, and, and boil it down to two sentences. Here's what, here's their stand on X. Here's their stand on, on Y and turn it into like a, you know, a spreadsheet in effect. And that way people can figure out, you know, who they, uh, who they might support. I, I believe one news outlet is doing something like that where, you know, they try to gauge where you're at as a voter and what candidates might match you very well, which is, I think, ambitious and good. But I, I, I'm just, I'm skeptical of the news forums. One thing I wanted to say about, about the last caller, and I, you know, which I thought was really interesting, was he is correct that, that few people are consistently liberal or consistently conservative, and sometimes the labels don't work that great. Uh, because I mean, for me, for example, I'm very socially liberal, and I just really for tolerance and letting people do what they you know what they want as long as they don't hurt other people, and not you know not creating a lot of laws that restrict people's uh, you know individual rights. On the other hand, I'm not for like spending every cent we can finally find anywhere, and I, I and unlike the Republicans and the Democrats, I'm in favor of a balanced budget, and I, and think that we should. Now, I, my my solution to that would be to to tax rich people more so that you could actually pay your bills. But that, but, but that's, I'm sort of conservative on economics. So, so I, I, he's, I think he made a really good point that, that, that people are not consistently all the same way. And sometimes the labels don't work. Okie dokie. By the way, um, one of the many things on our list of things to talk about today uh, brought a smile to my face. And uh, Mark, I think you sent this idea <clears throat> the idea about cliches, you know, things like, you know, there was a producer, Anna Vosser, who I used to work with. And over her years in television news, she actually kept a list of things like this and abundance of caution. You know, oh, that's a lot to unpack. And I wish I had copied that list of hers by the time I, I left Channel 5 because you know, it, and it was great. It was a it was a great guide of what not to say. But it is so easy to fall back um, on those things, um, you know. And and sometimes I think we feel it's safest, like we won't get into any trouble uh, if we use these phrases that are sort of time tested. But again, they become meaningless over time. That's a lot to unpack. Jennifer, do you do you want to take it? Well, you know, um, my I have a love hate relationship with the the fact that breaking news has become a cliche. Um, you know, it doesn't mean anything now because it's labeled for everything. Um, yeah, you know, look, I, people just need to take a breath and think before they write or they speak, and maybe not repeat. You know, some of those um, catchphrases that are stuck in their brains. Um, but I don't know. That seems like a lot to ask because, boy, 
um, we we seem to be a cliche society. <laughs> yeah. Right. I mean, but breaking news. Oh, my God. Well, you know, I Kill honestly, me. because Kill I complain now. about CNN, I do want to give credit where credit is due. One of the first things Chris Lick changed when he took over running CNN, you know, because CNN literally every show started with this breaking news banner. And he, he was like, you know, if we overuse it, it becomes meaningless. And that, and he took, he took that away. And sometimes you'll see continuing story or something like that. But, but now when I see on CNN a breaking news banner, I actually make sure I turn up the sound because, because they're not using it all the time. Usually it actually is something, something new. And that's what it was supposed to be. It was supposed to be, here's something new that just happened, and we're going to make you pay attention because we're going to give it this breaking news banner. But if you do it all the time, it's just worthless. Right. You diminish the coin of the realm. You, you know, and, you, and words mean less. You know, and the whole abundance of caution thing. I mean, is there any other kind of caution? I mean, you know, <laughs> I mean, it's, it's like, <laughs> why do you keep, and that's just, and, and that's just, a, it doesn't add any meaning or value. And it's like, and, and it seems like everyone's saying that these days. Another one that gets me is, uh, is uh, in real time, you know, well, we're, we're studying this in real time, or this is occurring in real time. <laughs> As opposed to what? As opposed to some, you know, <laughs> fantasy world two centuries ago? What are you talking about? Why, why are you saying that? <laughs> I, mean, I mean, it's like, I mean, it just sounded good. It sounded like urgent. You know, a lot of it, I think, language like that is in, intended to create a sense of drama and urgency in the in news broadcasts. And, and I will say, though, some of that is by design. I think that people are more sensitive to this stuff than they used to be. But it used to be, I've worked in newsrooms before where managers and producers required language like that because their bosses wanted language like that for just the reason you're saying, Mark, that the, that everything was going to be urgent and people wouldn't tune, tune away if everything was urgent. Not realizing that over time it's just become it becomes numb. Um, guys, thank you so much. We are out of time. The day like today goes so fast. Um, Jennifer Schulze, Mark Jacob, always appreciate your insights and your comments. It is always a pleasure to do these media segments with you. Thank you both for being here. Thanks. See you later. That is going to do it for me. Driving at home with Patty Vasquez is up next. I will see you tomorrow. We're going to have a couple more candidates, mayoral candidates. Speaking of having them on and giving them too much air, I'm going to be giving them more air tomorrow. Make sure you tune in and send me your questions. I'll see you at 2 o'clock tomorrow. Until then, have a great evening. Stay safe, my friends. Good night. Good night.